Okay, I'm going to move into a different mode now to address some of the questions you've posted on Dharma Tracks. And to say first of all that um, this is Dharma Stream and this has been set up uh, by a disciple, a supporter in Singapore, so everybody can use this Zoom room and we are grateful and acknowledge that. I didn't set this up, it's not mine, I, I, I am happy to contribute to it. Similarly with Dharma Tracks, I didn't set that up, um, it's not mine, it's um, another uh, supporter disciple asked if this was possible, would like to do it so that for other people's welfare and set it up and with my permission check things out and makes an effort to make that happen often with other, a few other people's support it's not run by an institution it's not run by the monastery I don't have don't even really have that much direct access to it I can't even really answer your questions on that on that form that you can see on Dharma Tracks I read them and from time to time I'd like to scoop up a few of these questions and respond to them. I'm not in a position to be able to offer one-to-one -one, um, teachings uh, to... there are many of you and there are not that many hours in a day. Um, so this is what I can do through these, through these forms that have been set up. And what you see in front of you, this is not mine either. This is something created by uh, a man and a woman who have both passed away now, <laughs> who lived in England. They created this thing. That's not really mine. It's been supported primarily by alms food for the last 46 years. So it's a, it's a group effort that keeps this thing going. Uh, so I can use it. And in fact, um, have used it. It's bearing, bearing some of the marks of ageing and general things that one does in one's life. Uh, much of this mind is not mine either. That's also a, a corporate territory. Fortunately, the Buddha Dhamma has occupied a considerable amount of it. So that's what I'll try to be teaching from or presenting from. This example really of um, really understanding what we take as a self or an entity is, is not an entity or a self at all. Everything Everything arises through factors coming together, separate factors unifying, coming together, cooperating, co-mingling, co-rising. But within this experience, generally the thinking mind experiences myself, fixed thing, others, self-other. It cuts things up into discrete objects. This is what's fundamental activity. This is me, that's that, I'm here, that's there, this is now, I will be in the future. It does this. It's a discriminating system that operates um, in accordance with where discrimination is necessary. Um, this is my shoe, this is my house and so forth. But it also operates where it's not really necessary. In fact, it's pretty harmful. And in this sense, it creates an identity called me who sits somewhere, and I can never really find it, but it continually bothers my heart. It splits off, and it talks to me, talks to my heart a lot. And it says, you are this, you are not this, you could be this, and you should be that. And 
creates a separate object other than what you're actually experiencing and it also tries to resolve itself by generally by some kind of act of editing or correcting or even punishing none of which do much good because it's a fiction based upon that initial presentation i'm going to look at a few questions really coming from that some of that paradigm of the separate self and self and other and to what extent this measurement self and other is useful and to what extent it's it's um, useless and in fact destructive so the first question how to work with jealousy and others good fortune especially when they praise themselves when I bring to mind the image of a friend who is happy with aspects of their life, I suggest that behind some superficial rejoicing in them, I feel a sense of jealousy. It is a sense of lack in my life. And that's in the way. When I look at this feeling of lack, it feels quite vague and unformed, more like a habit from childhood. Is there a skillful way of working with it? Well, I think you've got it pretty much right there you know this uh, sense of others this is a sense of others when it's coming from unskillful place based on unskillful mindset I am different from others as the baseline that becomes the fundamental uh, foundation I am different she is different now we can say to an external extent that's true, but it's not the most basic fundamental quality. If we look at very fundamentally, we go into what we experience ourselves as being most fundamentally, and we keep going through physical shape, yeah, 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 da, 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 and you come into a sense of presence and being affected, being sensitive. It's presence, awareness, and being affected by experience. That's what your chitta is. And that doesn't really do uh, an identity. It doesn't really do self and others. It does feeling. Feeling disappointed. Feeling gladdened. Uh, aroused. Friction. Conflict. Discord. It does that. It has these resonances move through it. And... This is on account of these resonances or distortions occur because of something else, a fundamental sense of something's missing in here. Something's not quite complete in here. This sense, missing, lack, not enough, not good enough, need more, something wrong. This is called ignorance. It's a sense of something's not quite here. Yeah, something we haven't got. Now, awija, something we don't sense. There's something here that's not enough, right? That's an absence, right? There's an absence in the core of my heart. There's an absence in my life that I'm trying to fill up that absence. So when that absence occurs, that sense of not enough, I throw some food in it. That doesn't quite do it. I maybe get a motorbike, throw a motorbike in it. That doesn't do it. 
I take it out dancing. That doesn't really do it. It kind of it takes me away from that sense of absence, but it doesn't really fill it. I keep throwing all these things in it and it doesn't quite fill it up. We put people in there to fill me up. <laughs> it still doesn't do it. Yeah. This hole never seems to get full up. Well, the problem is it's not a hole. That's where you can't fill it. <laughs> it's a block. It's not a hole. It's a block. It's a block, a lump of something called not knowing, not sensing. And what is not sensed is the true domain and the stability and the beauty of heart. So because of this not knowing or not sensing, not feeling, this sense of not enough, not enough happens. So that becomes a kind of a baseline or a fundamental position on a very basic level. And everybody has this kind of thing happening for them. Yeah. And then so is that not enough, not enough? And it's as that like a kind of an underground turbulence, an underground dis-ease. And as our discriminating mind, which is tuned to that's that, that's this, that's here, that's there, this is black, this is white, that's her, that's me, feels this sense of not enough. Because, oh, oh, that, if I had that, if I had that, I don't have that, I'm not this. So it starts to transmit that sense of inadequacy or incompleteness to what it sees around it. Oh, if I had one of those, I'd be, not, I'd be happy. Oh, why can't I have that one? Some, why can't I get that one? And of, of course, the most <laughs> so this you, know, you can see it's a very sense desire occurs. But even more profoundly than sense desire, we are fundamentally um, social creatures. Yeah, you know, we came, we grew up, we originated in somebody else's body. We were framed and born mother, father. Uh, we were brought up in schools, families education, we went to workplaces, shared towns, cities, villages. We are saturated in the sense of belonging to other people. Now when that sense of lack arises as a thing, then it's always comparing, I'm this, I'm the, I'm the not enough. So she's got it better, I'm not enough. She's got, I've got this sense of not enough, and that sense of not enough, I look around and think, He's got more than I have. More people like her than me. I don't get what she does. You know, she's having happiness, I'm not. So that sense of lack looks around and it sees things to confirm it. Now, clearly, you could look at these bodies and say, well, this her body is smaller or taller or the shape, I like that shape better than I like this shape. Or... You know, he has a lot of wealth. I don't have a lot of wealth. Yeah. What's happening is that that mind is focusing on the qualities that will support the sense of lack. Yeah. And this is very, we, then we get craving. I want to have, I want to, why can't I get, why can't I get? And then one of the negative forms is jealousy. How come she gets so much and I don't? How come he had such a good time and I didn't? You know, jealousy occurs. 
shouldn't be jealous. Because then that discrimination turns back and or we see ourselves as an object. A discriminating, make, discriminating mind creates myself as an object that I think about. And Well, myself is not good enough. Well, what's happening is the sense of lack is now turning its attention to the image of self that it creates. Get that? It creates a sense of a separate self when in fact we can't really find a separate self. It creates one. That's its first action. And then the sense of ignorance or lack looks at that sense of self and says, that's not enough. Because nothing's enough. When you're in the place of ignorance, nothing is good enough. <laughs> Apart from what you don't have. That's why ignorance supports craving. Right? Avijja tanha. Ignorance supports craving. So nothing is ever good enough apart from that which I want. Hmm? So when I come to looking at this idea of myself, which is produced through ignorance, this is not good enough either. Then we say, well, if I was wiser, brighter, stronger, more vigorous, more fluent, da, 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 then I would be good. Right? But you're not. So then you get the negativity starts occurring. And the criticism starts occurring. Because we're in the grip of ignorance and craving and it's all being broadcast by the discriminating mind that sees things as separate. Now, discriminating mind, do you get that? This discriminating mind that sees things as separate is a function that we have. It's a useful function in many ways. It can, you know, it, it gives us orientation on a sensory level. It is also highly developed in human beings because now we can also imagine things like the future. And we can organise that, even though it doesn't exist. We can remember things in the past, even though it's past, and we can organise that. We could stack up our memories that prove this or that. I'm like this because of this, that, and the other. All actions are discriminating mind. Many of those actions are based upon the sense of lack. So in the future, I will be if I get this and that and the other. If I organise this and that, I will have a nice, clear, steady, smooth journey. Until the crane is cancelled or the train crashes or the yada yada 101 things happen that don't work out according to the plans and yet we still keep the acting that way and throws it out so instead with meditation it looked just woo now when you try to meditate from the discriminating mind you're in difficulty because it isn't really meditation it's thinking. That's why you establish refuges and precepts first so you really enter the domain of heart because the domain of heart, its function is embracing rather than discriminating. Yeah? 
it feels. And when you feel something, you're immediately at that moment, if I'm touched by a touch, at that moment I'm not separate from it because it's touching me, right? If I am moved with joy or even anger, then at that moment I'm not separate from that which made me that way. It, it kind of embraces the feeling. Yeah. So it's a different organ altogether. Now, now of course, this heart quality can also be very negatively affected. And so we say, let's just get the heart in the right place because it's often got distortions. It's under the power of ignorance. It gets affected. It gets confused and frightened. It gets bonded to these effects. So let's put it in a place where it's really bonding to and taking as its baseline good heart the baseline yeah now remember it isn't something you exactly create but you stimulate it you drop in perceptions that remind you of that quality of value of value you take a stand on honesty generosity kindness and you feel them and you feel them and you breathe them and you chant them so they become much more than just notions and principles they become felt energies and from that, when that's strong all this ignorance stuff it just you know all the objects that have been created of ignorance start to just dissolve or disappear or become abated so you can look at them with insight saying oh that's where the problem is that's where it is so now you've got a vantage point on that and so we see another person we don't think she's better than me you start to think oh she's just like me she also has the body feelings heart she also has sorrow and joy she also gets happy she probably gets unhappy hmm? She probably also feels she's better than somebody and worse than somebody else. She probably also has the same disease as I have, which is feeling a sense of lack, and she's trying to fill it up. So there she is, dressing up, looking good, chatting and laughing, smiling and joking, trying to put on something to make herself feel good, because at the bottom of it, she has the same sense of lack as I have <laughs> and all this stuff is just helping to compensate for that then you have a feeling of compassion it really helps it's a very powerful value compassion mm. there's no judgment in it No. and all the confusions and the happiness and the playfulness and whatever it is that we see in others in just like me yeah I know that too and there's some sense of you step back other people show you that what you take as yourself is not 
It's just the same material. And you look at it with a sense of, hmm, don't identify with this. Don't get intense about this. Don't get possessive about this. Don't get disgusted by this. It's just stuff. And essentially, these give us a sense of what comes from the heart. Samasankapa, right motivation, right resolve, right intent, you might say. The intent of sustaining harmlessness, non-brutality. This intent of sustaining non-callousness, empathy, intent to not hoard and covet, but to do the opposite, to relinquish and let go. Then the heart is beginning to express its strength. Express its strength. This is the foundation from which we cultivate right effort to make that resolve realised. There's just another question, which is, I think it's probably much the same, just to mention it. Uh, uh, living through old age sickness and death is really highlighting my dread of being a naughty girl, being demanding, unreasonable, unattractive, not putting others first, all the things we have to train ourselves in to fit in with others, especially family. Yeah, well, there it is self and others in an unskillful way to fit in with family to fit in with workplace to fit in with colleagues to fit in with the social standards of what a good person is supposed to be and it's all discriminated stuff from a heart that hasn't found its own strength its own values of course we get indoctrinated into this this sense of the separate self. Social creatures. It's a human problem. I mean, there are other creatures, as say elephants and many other animals, as very social creatures. They have anger, they have fear, they have joy. They look after their young. They fight. One thing they don't do, there's no sign of them ever doing, is hating themselves. Because their, their sense of social bond is fundamentally empathic. We're together. We don't compete. We're looking after each other. That's, that's the bond. And wherever you are in that relationship, you're, you know, you're supported and encouraged and, you know, but rather than something that's aversive. This is something to cultivate towards yourself your flaws, your blemishes, the things you find disagreeable. You've really got to come from the heart with that. You can't start sorting other people out. They are, <laughs> they're beyond your reach. However, someone also asking a question to use the grief after loss of a loved one. This person lost the husband to a terminal illness which affected the health for the last four years of his life. They were practicing Dhamma together for the last 15 years of our 25 year married life. The person's questioner tried her best to help the husband. 
and right until his deathbed. This brings me joy. Helping him helped me as well as he had a very steady mind, even when his brain had dementia. Even now I try to bring his way of thinking to my life when thing goes towards making more suffering. This is using self and other in a skillful way, right? To bring around what this person is talking about, compassion, empathy, sharing, rather than, you know, loss. You know, so again, that sense of bereavement, loss. Um, we are social creatures, so there's what we might call an emotional body. We also have a flesh body, an energy body, we also have an emotional body. An emotional body has its own kind of food and its own processes. And when it receives a shock, just like you've eaten something distasteful, it has to expel it. Grief is one way of expelling the sense of that ripping sense of bereavement. It's, it's the emotional body is regaining its health. Um, it's like, you know, the sense of discord that arises when you've been bonded to someone, the discord that arises, separation. It's emotionally healthy to feel some, some sort of grief. As long as that pertains, the sense of self and other pertains. Now, you might say the, the Arahant doesn't really have a sense of self and other. Um, so there's nothing really gained or lost of just conditions and forms arising and passing. I expect most of us are not really at that stage yet. So we're still working with, okay, there's, I, you know, even I get the sense, even, you know, I have so many friends all over the world and I've been locked down. I don't say grief, but a feeling of, oh, I miss seeing so-and-so. It was nice when I was there. I wonder how is he's getting on. I wonder how she's doing. Well, you know, that sense of, oh, people you kind of like to, you like your concern for. And so there's a sense of just wishing them well and may they be well and may I be well and just trying to bring forth this quality, this heart quality of kindness and compassion. And that's when we use the sense of self skillfully, the sense of separation skillfully to bring around a quality that unifies us. This is the Brahma Vihara. And ageing, sickness and death are great places to trigger and bring around those beautiful fruitions. Gratitude. And then the loved one stays with you. The body disappears, but the loved one stays with you. And you commemorate them and you reflect upon them and you express gratitude. And you also ask forgiveness for things that have gone wrong. Then you make use of skillful use of the sense of self and other. Okay, a few more questions. A couple of questions around someone experiences a loss of sense of direction, has no mood or zest for living. This is a symptom of depression. Although I'm trying to cultivate calming, the sense of insecurity really overwhelms me. The sense of loss of direction, feeling overwhelmed. Um, depressed. 
and so on. Um, mm -hmm. So you're certainly not alone, I assure you. Another person experiences the daily suffering, thoughts, angry thoughts, distasteful ego, at least self-admonishment, and so forth. <clears throat> How to, and it's so compulsive, so compelling, to linger in these negative, afflictive states. Well, sense of direction, we pick up that one. Direction has to be to get centred. And, you know, you can't get centred in phenomena that arise and pass. Um, even though they maybe don't pass quick enough. <laughs> but phenomena that arise, insecurity, anxiety, depression self-aversion and so that when your attention goes to those forms if your attention lingers on those forms if your mind lingers on those forms of anxiety depression insecurity uh, self-criticism an intensity an emotional intensity accumulates what your attention lingers on an emotional intensity occurs around that. It really grips you and you get buried in it. So the, the attention generates a kind of an emotional intensity around these phenomena and then it becomes you. The sense of you is really an emotional intensity. When you say something's mine, you have a certain emotional intensity around that possession, person, phenomenon, condition, state. You know, this is mine. There's an intensity there. <sighs> we really want to get centred, getting a little more emotional intensity around qualities such as meaning, value, virtue, generosity, honesty, yeah? faith. And this turning towards the heart is the turning of faith. It doesn't mean a belief. It means turn away from things that are temporal, circumstantial, discordant, turn towards where there's a possibility for beauty, strength, and it's, it's not going to come with a discriminating mind. You have to use, like what I've been mentioning, use, certainly use a thought to touch the heart, what really matters now, centred now, not direction in the future, but direction now is to get to the centre of your life. Yeah, And if you find in the centre of your life you just feel really bad, you haven't gone deep enough. If you feel really bad, flawed, imperfect, what's really important here is kindness. You set the baseline on positive qualities not on negative qualities not on the sense of self but on the values of the good heart and then you can review these distressing phenomena in true light and the beauty of turning on the light of the heart is rather like when you turn on the light the shadows disappear by themselves you don't have to fight with them the shadows disappear. What am I talking about? Who's that? 
It's just shadows playing. Very powerful, I agree. Very disturbing, very gripping. But these are shadows. Turn on the light. Find out where the light switch is. <laughs> know that you have one. That's the turning that we want to bring around for our Dhamma practice. I'd like to just spend a little time just dealing with some things perhaps a little more of a theoretical nature. I mean, my, my aim primarily is pragmatic, but some theory perhaps helps to, for you to, you know, do your own reflections, see how things line up, get a grip on the teaching. First one is, question is, um, that the person asks that I, me, Ajahn, draws a close parallel between citta, the heart-mind, and chitana, volition. The questioner hasn't seen this connection before. I'd be interested to hear more. Well, you know, I think in a way those two words do speak for themselves, citta, chitana, there. Chitana is that which comes from chitta. <laughs> you know, you can see the very language itself gives you that impression, doesn't it? Chitta, chitana. Um, chitana, now we're dealing with translations. See, so chitta, heart. Well, heart's just a translation. A simple English word. Uh, intention is, or volition is the word for chitana, and it refers to that jump of impulse, that ah, that ooh, that ah, what's that, that flicker that turns your attention, Chaitanya. So that comes straight from the heart. It could be, of course, a deluded heart, a confused heart, but that jump, Chaitanya, is pretty instant and very compelling. So we get this kind of rising up of intention, uh, we follow it. And some of it's not very good, but we follow it because it's got this power to move the heart. And the heart is the center of our experience. So when that heart moves, the center of our experience moves with it. That's powerful, isn't it? If, if your heart moves with fear, you will see around you all kinds of things that threaten you. Your world moves with you, with your heart. If you, you know, if your heart intentions, impulses that to do with um, kindness and sharing, you look around, you think, "Oh, that's beautiful. I could do that." You know, different set of intentions comes up. Um, so the intention has to be moderated, not just blindly followed, but paused. Check, wait, just a minute before you follow that. Where's that going? Where did it come from? Did it come from a sense of lack and not enough, not good enough? Or does it come from a sense of like to offer something? Transforming the quality of tanha, craving, into the quality of chanda, motivation, purpose. This is how you train chaitanya. And then, okay, you want to sit in your meditation, turn your intention. Where does the sense of safe, gladness, welcoming, refuge, establish that intention? I take refuge. This body 
is taking refuge. It is in refuge. There is safety. It is valuable. It is meaningful. Hmm? Establish the heart. The intention will then follow it. If you establish the heart, intention will follow it. If you establish intention, the heart follows that. Right? The two go together. So if, if your intention is coming from a confused place, your heart will go to a confused place. Establish your heart first. Intention will come forth in the right way. Follow intention, your heart will follow that. Get it round the right way. It's like before the horse leaves the stable, make sure you're sitting on the back of it. <laughs> Otherwise it will just run off any old direction. If you're sitting steady, the horse perhaps won't even need to leave the stable. It will be quite content where it is. Right? Get the priorities right. Chitana, chitta. Of course, it takes some intention to even go into the heart. That must be your first one. Act of faith. Establish Buddha. Take refuge. What is there to take refuge in? Body? Not really. Uh, thought? No. Heart? Awareness? Presence? Goodness? Um, person asks questions about unconditioned. Um, some teachers speak of a form of awareness or knowing which is unconditioned. The suttas do not attest to this. But resting in awareness naturally leads to letting go in dispassion. Well, hmm, unconditioned is a powerful, somewhat enigmatic term. You might say there are no conditions there. And we probably would recognise a lot of the time conditions are present. Uh, we have certain biases, uh, certain things, uh, desires, uh, uncertainties, uh, fears, uh, compulsions. So we say, well, let's just put the goal of unconditioned as a goal. Let's just put that on the shelf for a while. Start deconditioning the things that... Uh, cause me suffering. So then we talk about unconditioned as a process of deconditioning. Deconditioning. First of all, the first step is viveka, stepping back, have no position, no aim, apart from to be aware. Step back. This is this, this is that, this is this, this goes this way, this goes that way. Establish sati. This is this, this is that. So that quality has a degree of unconditioned and it's not conditioned by a goal in the future. It's not conditioned by I will be, I want to be. It's, it's only its basic stance is there will be seeing and knowing. So to that extent, that is already really removing some conditioning forces. As that becomes more potent, will recognise the quality of passion that's arising in the mind, what I've called emotional intensity. I get really excited about this. I feel really upset about that. This bothers me. This worries me. This makes me feel rattled. What's the common denominator of it? They've all got emotional intensity to them. 
that moves me. You know, as I contemplate that, and most of the work in meditation, just contemplating that emotional intensity and not getting intense about it. Yeah, this is just a thought, this is just a feeling, this is just a mood and emotion. It rises and passes. Where does it go to? Where does it come from? It doesn't go anywhere useful. It arises from somewhere I don't even know. It's kind of just a confused instinct. Does it go anywhere useful? Well, it goes on and on and on. Therefore, one becomes what's called disenchanted. It's just me getting excited. Okay, so what? You know, And <laughs> this has an effect. Somehow, this cooling effect. Another level of conditioning begins to disappear, which is this sense of emotional intensification or grasping, as it's called. So that's a powerful degree of conditioning that's been released. Even further than that is the sense of self. I am practicing, I am this, I am not that, how am I, how was I, am this. This also goes nowhere useful. Can this sense of taking things personally, identifying, can this also be What's that? How interested are you in that? How valuable is that? Now, in some walks and attitudes of our life, it's, it's very useful when we're in a social situation. But in meditation, you don't need an identity. In fact, it gets in the way. In certain places, you do want an identity. You might a relative identity. You know, I'm, I'm this. This is me. Hi, <laughs> hello, <laughs> me. That's useful. But when you meditate, you don't need it anymore. So it's like clothes. You take them off, and you begin to see this identity thing. In this level of experience, is just really a bit of a burden and something grows dispassion, then you've released another lot of conditioning. And then this is where unconditioned becomes much more a valid term. Now, the quality of awareness that's moving through that also increasingly purifies, I would say, as we go along. So I don't personally think we start with unconditioned awareness. I think we start with a good handle on it and we continue to purify that. But that's just my take on it. Somebody asked about kasinas. Uh, kasinas, these are sometimes appear, particularly in, in line with the Visuddhi Magga, which is a famous meditation manual written in about 5th century in Sri Lanka by an eminent bhikkhu called Puddhagosa. It acts as a kind of foundation stone of much of subsequent what's called Theravada. Um, Kasinas was a seemingly a meditation where you look at something, an object, until eventually you can close your eyes and still see that object kind of in your mind's eye. Then you focus on that object in your mind's eye until the mind becomes very purified and another kind of sign arises. You focus on that. It's quite a complex system. And these signs are called kasinas. You look at an object out there like a disc. It seems they had a disc of some kind, like a white disc or a gold disc, and you keep looking at it. 
steadily until eventually when you close your eyes you can still see it so then you retain that mental impression and you start focusing on that it leads to concentration and this seems to have been the system they were using perhaps in Sri Lanka or southern India at that time but one has to say that it doesn't really appear in the suttas the word kasina is used in the suttas but very rarely actually uh, and it's not even explained it just says there are an earth kasina a water kasina a fire kasina an air kasina uh, um, and a space kasina and a consciousness kasina so what these things actually refer to in the suttas is rather difficult to say but they don't seem to appear they only appear very rarely one you know about half a dozen times in the entire Sutta Pitika. So although this Kasina system could work and seemingly these people made it work, it's not actually um, kind of what the Buddha taught. So I, I don't generally, I have, I, have, I have practiced with this but I don't, I generally do follow the Buddha or as close as I can get to the Buddha in the, some of the other um, canonical works like the Pali Canon or even the Chinese Canons. Remember all we have is these texts. Um, the most complete text is the Pali Canon but you can't really say it's original because the earliest manuscript we have is about 15th century because it was all written on palm leaves you see which disintegrate. So we've got nothing really that goes back to the time of the Buddha and we can validate all the stuff in India got wiped out. You've got some versions in China, some versions in Tibet, some versions in Sri Lanka, and they, some of them really seem to match up to give you a feeling of, yeah, this, this is pretty much, must have been what the Buddha taught. If it's not actually word for word, this is what he taught. So these canons have their uses. Um, but this other thing is a kind of what's called Theravada development, which occurred about 800, 900 years after the Buddha. Okay, Hiriyotapa, last one. Hiriyotapa, uh, can you use Hiriyotapa for those who are not familiar with these words? Hiriyotapa is a sense of conscience and concern or sometimes moral fear and dread. And basically, which is pretty grim, isn't it? But it, first of all, it means, Hiri means, you know, I feel I've let myself down. That was not beautiful. Yeah, and then um, you know my behaviour wasn't very was very beautiful, and Otipa means I think I've let other people down. I've really, you know, made things difficult for them, mm. and they they will be diminished by my actions. Mm. So here in Otipa, and these are called the guardians of the world, because if these are present, then they keep restraining our recklessness. They keep encouraging us to be more sensitive and empathic rather than just blindly following our impulses. It's important to distinguish this from a sense of constant paranoia or guilt as in the Judeo-Christian sense of it, which is a kind of feeling of always punishing myself. Now, the difference being with Hiriotopo, it's not that I'm a bad person, it's just that action was not worthy of me. Fundamentally, in my place of value, which I keep referring to 
referring to every day I look at in my life, think that action I did was not worthy of my true value. I, I have let myself down in that sense, but I can retract, I can set it right again. Yeah. And then we extend that sense of value to others. Like, she also is someone to be valued. He also is something to be treated with respect. She also, her sensitivities, her pain concerns me. Therefore, I don't belittle them. I don't dismiss them. I don't look down upon them. I don't shut them out. I don't condemn them. I don't lie to them, cheat them, abuse them, use them for my own purposes. I respect them. Because to not do so would be damaging to my own heart, let alone to theirs. If my heart is acting in callous, insensitive, dismissive ways, what kind of heart is that? <laughs> yeah. You know, I have to live with that, right? So one guards one's heart. In guarding one's heart, one guards the welfare of others. In guarding the welfare of others, one guards oneself. In valuing the welfare of others, one values one's own heart. In valuing one's own heart, truly, one values others because you touch others properly with your heart, not with your discriminating mind, not with your comparing, contrasting mind, but you're with your empathic and generous and sensitive heart. Hiriotipa keeps you in that place as you act in your day. Therefore, it is to be remembered and respected as something that we all have and should not dismiss casually brush off or diminish in any way so thank you very much for listening thank you very much again Vita for holding this room available for us for the welfare of so many people sadhu sadhu sadhu